Ruth chapter 2, we began this study last week called Hope for the Hopeless. We walked through chapter 1, and now we are in chapter 2. Pick me up in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, make note of this phrase, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out, verse 3, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she, I, I love this, this is, this is tongue-in-cheek, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has come from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God, of Is the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, girl, where you been? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite movies of all time is the original Karate Kid. Love that movie. No offense to Will Smith's son, couldn't get with that one. I go back, mid-80s. If you've ever seen this movie, uh, you know uh, that the protagonist, Daniel, um, comes to Mr. Miyagi and asks Mr. Miyagi to train him for an upcoming tournament in which he's got to face off with some of his classmates who've been bullying him. Mr. Miyagi agrees, and they set a date for the training to begin. Daniel is so excited when he gets over to Mr. Miyagi's house, anxious to get trained. 
And yet when he gets over there, he's shocked to discover that, that he's being asked to paint Mr. Miyagi's fence. He thinks it's weird, and he goes about painting Mr. Miyagi's fence, but no problems. A couple days later, he gets back to Mr. Miyagi's house, uh, thinking now the training's going to begin, and so excited, and he gets there, and he's shocked to discover that Mr. Miyagi wants him to, to wax his cars. Yeah, some of y'all, some of y'all are flowing with me. So he's, he's really disappointed, but, but that's okay. He waxes the cars, and a couple days later, he's thinking, now the training is really about to begin, and he, he gets back over to Mr. Miyagi's house, and he's just disheartened to discover that Mr. Miyagi has told him that he wants Daniel to, to sand his floors. On a poignant scene, Daniel, now he's lost his mind because he hadn't signed up for this. He signed up to learn karate. And he says to, in so many words to Mr. Miyagi, you've, you've got me functioning as your armor bearer. You've got me out here doing your chores. I didn't sign up for these random acts. I signed up, Mr. Miyagi, to learn karate. What you've got me doing is not connected at all to, to what I've signed up for. Mr. Miyagi responds in so many words by telling Daniel to not be so naive that what he's been doing is, has not been a part of just some random acts of coincidence. In fact, little does Daniel realize it, he's, he's been being trained. So here's Mr. Miyagi. He connects the dots for Daniel. He says, show me paint the fence. Show me wax the cars. Show me sand the floors. And it's at this moment where the lights come on for Daniel when he realizes that his life has been a part of a grand master plan, that what he's been going through has, has not been by accident or by coincidence. It's been by providence. It was the Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard who pulls us into the philosophical and theological tension of life when Soren Kierkegaard said, fundamentally, the problem with life is that life is best understood backwards, but we have to live it forwards. You've missed that. Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says that the problem with life is that our problem is it's best understood backwards. But we have to live it forwards. And because of this, I don't care where you are on the spiritual continuum this morning, you will find yourself at various junctures frustrated with God because it, it seems as if God is playing a, a cosmic sort of Mr. Miyagi where your life, it seems, is filled with random events that don't seem to connect well. You'll find yourself frustrated with God if you tell the truth, God, out of left field, this thing happens. God, why did you allow me to, to flunk out of school? Or God, why, why did I get the pink slip? Or, or God, here I am, I'm out doing the best that I can. And it just ain't working out. It seemed as if the cards have not fallen my way. God wants us to understand that nothing in our lives happens by accident or by coincidence, but they happen by providence. I've been using a word that I need to slow down a bit and unpack for you. This morning, I want to unpack for you a fundamental trait of how we look at God, how we understand God, and what it means to steward our theme for the year, which is the gospel well. If you do not understand the doctrine of the providence of God, you will not understand your Bible, you will not understand this message, and even more so, you have no hopes of understanding your life. The doctrine of the providence of God, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, says it this way. He says, God's providence has to do, watch it now, with his ongoing relationship to his creation. 
writing in the 1600s, the Puritan pastor John Flavel writes in his astounding work, The Mystery of Providence, he writes, speaking of the providence of God, not only great and more important, but the most minute and ordinary affairs of our lives are transacted and managed by it. And by it, he means the providence of God. It touches all things that touch us, whether more nearly or remotely. I love how the brilliant Dallas uh, preacher and pastor Tony Evans defines the providence of God. Tony Evans says that the providence of God has to do, watch it now, with the hand of God in the glove of time. That's tweetable. Let me give it to you again. Tony Evans says that the providence of God has to do with the hand of God in the glove of time. The providence of God fundamentally says that God has created all of us, and he is not how the deists posit God to be. Deism fundamentally says that God is a divine clockmaker who got time going, who got our lives going, and then stepped away from us. That is not what the providence of God teaches. The providence of God says that all of us, all of us, all of us, saved or unsaved, grew up in the church, was at vacation Bible school, uh, did all of that stuff, or whether or not this is your first time in church and you have no idea who Jesus is, you have no idea what the Bible is the Bible teaches that all of us, inhaling and exhaling, have been created by a divine, benevolent God, and he has given us his common grace. That's why uh, Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he calls it, causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. If you are breathing, you are here by the providence of God. God's providence says, I have not given up on you. God's providence says, I am intimately and intricately involved in your life. God's providence says, as far as the east is from the west, is as far as I have removed your sins from you. God's providence says, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. He's working it out in our lives. He's up to something in your life. Your daddy may not have wanted anything to do with you, but your daddy is no commentary on your heavenly daddy. God is involved in your life. He has not given up on you. He has not turned his back on you. He has not forgotten about you. You may not feel him. Just like there's days we cannot feel the sun, but it's there. You may not feel God, but he's there. You may not sense him, but he's there. You may think you've done so many bad things that he wants nothing to do with you right now. Would you just take a deep breath? That deep breath is a sign that he is still concerned about your life. It is the providence of God. We serve a God who has created you and is inviting you to the table of his fellowship to have intimate relationship with you. And today, he wants you to get in on his providence in your life. Now, if there's one phrase I want you to write in your notes app, there's one phrase I want you to write in the margin of your Bible in Ruth chapter 2. This phrase sums up really all of the story of Ruth, but especially Ruth 2. It is the providence of God. Here's Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. In political speak, she's an immigrant. She's from another country. She's fallen on hard times. Her husband has died. She's left without kids. There's reasons to believe that she's battling issues of infertility. She's the least likely candidate for the providence of God. Here comes this widow, this immigrant. She walks into Bethlehem. 
She wakes up one day and she says, Naomi, I'm going to work. She walks and she just so happens to glean in Boaz's field. And Boaz just so happens to take notice of her. And Boaz just so happens to show her favor. And Boaz just so happens to protect her by telling the other men, don't touch her. And Boaz just so happens to provide for her. The text says that she ate until she was satisfied. And Boaz will later on just so happen decide to redeem her. And later on just so happen decide to marry her. And later on she'll just so happen to become the great grandmother of David. And later on she'll just so happen to be included in the lineage and the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Her life is all about providence. I say that phrase just so happens tongue in cheek because what this text teaches, nothing, nothing, nothing happens in our lives that just so happens. Anything that happens in our lives is either because God has decreed it or has allowed it. In fact, Job chapter 1 teaches us that Satan can't even mess with you without first getting permission from God. You are here because of the providence of God. Your mom and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And you've heard me say it before, one of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you, you was a surprise. <laughs> but in the sovereignty of God, in the providence of God, there are no surprises. All things work together for good. So I'm here to tell you, God has not given up on you. I'm here to encourage you this morning that God is actively involved in our lives. And his active involvement in our lives is called the providence of God. In fact, some of you are here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. But you are in church today because of the providence of God. So here's a question I want to entertain with you for the next few moments we have together, and it's a good one. Pastor, how do I know God is moving in my life? When God decides to move in my life, Pastor, how do I know? I, I need to know this because I feel like Daniel sometimes with God. I, I don't see any rhythm or rhyme to my life. My life doesn't seem to make sense. Our text says that if you would just peek in the rearview mirror of your life, you will see three primary ways in which God is moving in your life, all of our lives, saved and unsaved alike. You ready? Here we go. Here's Ruth. She gets up one day and she says, Naomi, I'm out the door. I got to go to work. Here is Ruth. These two women are widows. They're marginalized. They're on the brink of starvation. They've gone through hell and high water. And Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I'm going to work. And again, she just so happens to encounter a man named Boaz. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, we are told who Boaz is. He is, watch it now, described as being a worthy man. That word worthy, our text, is it's written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for worthy, I love it, it simply means full of substance. This word is a comprehensive word, watch it now, that doesn't just speak to his finances, although his bank account is weighty. He's an entrepreneur. He's got the brand new chariot with the 26-inch rims. But it's also a word that speaks to his character. He's, he's substantive as it relates to who he is. In fact, we, we see this. It's the first words out of his mouth. The Lord bless you. 
He's, he's a man whose bottom line is not just his bottom line. He, he's not extracting his sense of self-worth from his profit and loss sheets. What motivates him in life is God. Brothers, if I could just stop right here, we, we need a lot of Boazes in our world today. We, we need men who are not just killing it in the marketplace, but are killing it in their walk with Christ. Our society needs a plethora of Boaz men. Men who aren't just public successes while being private failures, but men who, who are even more impressive in private than they are in public. We need Boaz men. And in this encounter with Boaz, what happens? Boaz literally changes her life. Again, he gives her favor. He protects her. He provides for her. He, he, he will take her from poverty to prosperity comprehensively. She will be ultimately included in the lineage of David, the great king of Israel. And later on, we see her in the lineage of Jesus. How does her life change? God just doesn't just sit up in heaven and zap the change. He uses other people. How does God work in my life? Oh, look through the rearview mirror of your journey in this life, and you will see the providence of God as he is working in your life through other people. Is this not what J.D. Vance was getting at in his classic book, Hillbilly Elegy? Here is this man, he... He grew up in the, Appalachian, in the Appalachian Mountains. Here's this man who came up in poverty. Most of his family barely made it through high school. He's the first to go off to college and graduate, and ultimately he goes to Yale. And what does J.D. Vance tell us? He says, I got sense enough to know that I didn't make it just because I was smart. I had some people helping me along the way. He calls it social capital. J.D. Vance says, I, I had relationships. I, I had other people in my life. In fact, he says, if I didn't have these other people, I would not be where I am today. Growing up, I remember being a little boy. I'd go up to Elder Arshel, go, go up to visit my uncle in Philadelphia. I remember being four or five years old. And, and I used to love, I used to love, it was highly illegal, but my uncle would let me drive his car. Four or five years old, sit on his lap, highly illegal. My uncle would let me drive his car. I'd come home so excited. I'd walk in the door. I can still hear my four or five-year-old little self walking in the door. Mama, mama, Uncle Butch let me drive today. <laughs> now, mama never scolded me. She just shot her younger brother a knowing look. Now, what was going on? How come mama never scolded me? Well, if you would have passed us on one of those streets in Philadelphia, you would have done a double take as you saw a four-year-old sitting on his uncle's lap, hands on the steering wheel. But the reason why my mama never scolded my, my uncle is because while it looked like I was in control, uncle's hands were under my hands. And my feet couldn't touch the gas or the brake, but his feet was touching the gas and the brake. It looked like I was getting us to our destination when at the end of the day, I had a whole lot of help. I'm here to tell you the providence of God wants us to know that you ain't that smart. You ain't that sophisticated. You ain't that cute. You ain't that all that to get to where you are. You had a whole lot of help. In fact, isn't this what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7? Will you look at it with me? Paul writes, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You know what Paul is saying? Stop standing on third base acting like you hit a triple. You had a whole lot of help. Would you just pause right now and think back with me of the people that God has sent your way? When I think about my own self, yes, I, I, I'm here where I am because of the providence of God, but I'm at where I'm at, bad grammar, good theology, because of the providence of God working through people. 
The very fact that I got a mama and a daddy. In fact, let, let me just say this. I don't like the phrase white privilege. I don't like that phrase. I don't like that phrase. Why? Because privilege ain't the problem. One. Two, all of us, I don't care what our color is, we have a measure of privilege. All of us. I got parents who were married for 47 years. That's a measure of privilege. I got parents who still love me, still love Jesus, who have given me a good name, and who nurtured in me a faith in Christ, and who pushed me and encouraged me and helped to facilitate my dreams. That's, that's some of your story. Others of you, that's not your story. You, you, you didn't have a mama in your home or a daddy in your home. But what you could have had was a, was a teacher who inspired you. What you could have had was a mentor who encouraged you. If you went to college on a scholarship, that's God working through other people. Someone wrote a check to pay for the scholarship that funded your education. Stop standing on third base acting as if you are a self-made person. God has sent people your way. Listen, I want you to understand, I'm not the best preacher in the world, but if you've ever been blessed by my ministry, here's why. When I was 22 years old, my godfather, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, he's coming to preach here next year for our 30th anniversary. My godfather, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, when I was 22 years old, gave me a, gave me a job, my first job out of college that I did not deserve. I didn't even have a resume. Gave me a job I didn't deserve, put me up to preach, to practice preaching. I didn't have a gift that deserved standing in front of 13,000 people. And when I messed up, he didn't kick me to the curb, but he gave me grace. He was my Boaz. I am where I am today because somebody gave me a shot. Now, I might just toss this in here for free. I think a good application of this text is, is to not only see yourself as Ruth in need of help, but hear me, when you get over to the other side, when you get to your promised land, you also need to be Boaz. Don't you get so high up on the hog that you forgot the little people along the way. You need to reach back and you need to give somebody else a shot because somebody gave you a shot. How does God work in our lives? He works in our lives through other people. I love this. Secondly, Ruth says, Naomi, I'm going to work. Text says that she says, Naomi, I'm going to go glean in the fields. Gleaning was a job that was left for poor people. The idea of gleaning simply means you walk behind people who are gathering the sheaves and you picked up what they couldn't hold on to. To glean, it, it was to eke out an existence. In fact, the best way I can give you a picture of gleaning is if you've ever seen a homeless person pushing a shopping cart, picking up aluminum cans, that's gleaning. It's getting the leftovers. I love this. This job was a job that was reserved for poor people. That's Ruth. I love Ruth. But when Ruth gets to work, she makes a crazy request. She says in verse 7, not only do I want to glean, I also want in on the sheaves. Girl, you done lost your mind. The sheaves was the main part. Ruth, the Moabite immigrant, who, by the way, it's her first day at work. She said, now, I know you might have hired me for the poor people stuff, but I want in on the main part. Now, watch it. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, the text says, this is the foreman talking. Speaking of Ruth, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, the ESV, which is what I preach out of all the time, uh, I, they get it wrong here. 
If you were to read it in the Hebrew, actually the New American Standard says it better. Look at what the New American Standard says. Same verse. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came, here it is, and has remained, remained from the morning until now. This is important. Watch it. Ruth, new girl in town, first day on the job, she says to the foreman, I don't want to just glean. I want to be on the sheaves detail. And the text says she remains, which means I, I ain't going nowhere until I get my answer. And the foreman, the reason why she remains is because what she's asking is so outlandish, the foreman doesn't have the authority to give her her answer. So the foreman has to wait until the boss man, Boaz, shows up. That's how Boaz notices Ruth. Had she just gone about business as usual, they might never have met. But, she, but because she asks a crazy request, I want in on the sheaves. Oh, you can't, you can't give me an answer? That's okay. Call your boy. She's rolling her neck. I ain't going nowhere. I got time. Well, she ain't got to watch. I got time. Watch it. This decision, split-second decision, to ask something crazy, to go out the box, catches, her, catches Boaz's attention. Boaz then enters into her life, and her life is changed because a crazy decision was made. How does God move in my life? Through other people. And through my decisions. Now, I just messed y'all up. If you grew up in church, you were probably taught an erroneous teaching about the will of God and how God moves in our lives. Some of you were taught that if you want an answer to a specific thing, you need to wait and hear from God. The problem with life is that much of life isn't lived in the black and white, it's lived in the gray. Which means a lot of the decisions I need to make in my life, the Bible does not speak specifically into. When I fell in love with, with girlfriend, with Sister Corey, there was not a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt marry Corey Benavides. Maybe it was in first hesitations or something like that. I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. What the Bible gave me was broad parameters. Does she love the Lord? She's saved. There's a sense of compatibility. You check those boxes. But I need a word. Now, here's my problem. Some of y'all, some of y'all, I, I know you say God talks to you every day specifically. He don't roll with me like that. There's been like five times in which I've heard an audible voice from God. So how do I make decisions? There's a section of the scripture called wisdom. Wisdom literature. Wisdom genre. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. The idea of wisdom is the idea of good decisions. The very fact that there's a genre of the Bible that exists to equip you in good decision-making means this. God is okay with you making decisions. Is, is this mic on? Some of y'all are waiting for an audible voice, and God is waiting on you to move. Hear me. You do your checks, and yes, you ask for the Spirit of God to speak, but you do your checks. Is this in line with the, with, with the will of God? If I'm looking for a job, will this allow me to provide for my family? Will, will, will it allow me to, 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 to earn a, a living way? Whatever it may be, you do your checks. Is it in line with the will of God? And you draw your fences, and once you draw your fences, pull the trigger. Make a decision. See, this is where Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 helps me. Look at it with me. This is an astounding truth, and I want you to get this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Here's, here's what he's saying. Here's how you make good decisions. Walk with the Lord. Pray. Be in the scriptures. Be filled with the spirit. Just walk with me. Walk with me. Walk with me. Watch it. And you know what he says when he says, and he will make your path straight? Here's what he's saying. You can't screw it up. Listen, listen. The providence of God fundamentally says, I am actively involved in your life. And you are going to get all that I want you to get as long as you are faithfully walking with me. So the emphasis is on, let me just faithfully walk with God. And as I'm walking, God says, make a decision. Stop praying to me, waiting for a word on whether or not you should go on the cruise to the Caribbean or go to South Africa. I made it all. Choose. (laughs) Choose. Why don't you just bless me that you got into Stanford and MIT? Why don't you just bless me that you got the options? That I've opened the doors. I've given you choices. Some folk don't get choices. Okay, pray to me about the choices. I have not spoken to you specifically about Stanford or MIT. Okay, make make a decision. I'm going to be with you. But God, I'm worried if I choose Stanford instead of MIT, then am I going to miss out on my wife? You ain't going to miss out on nothing. He will make your paths straight. You will get to where you're going. Let's go home on this. How does God move in my life? How does he move? Through other people. And through my decisions, caveat, as I'm walking with the Lord, God ain't going to bless foolishness. Are you with me on that? God ain't going to bless foolishness. He's, I once got invited by a member, not at this church, I was working at another church, not at this church. They wanted me to do, do their house blessing, but they were shacking up. Listen, I can't bless that. So if all hell is breaking out in your life, first thing you need to do is, am I trusting the Lord with all my heart? Am I walking with the Lord? Sometimes the hell you're going through, you did it. You did it. One of the things God says is, when you don't give to me the way I have ordained for you to give, here's what God says, I am going to put holes in your pocketbook. That's God's word. So stop going to the crown financial class. The crown can't fix that. So when I'm walking with God, and I'm just doing the best I can, God says, breathe, make decisions. I'm going to bless you. You're going to get to where you're going. Make decisions. How does God work in my life? Let's go home on this one. Ruth is constantly called a Moabite. Wow. Moab, watch it. It's a compound word. Mo means who. Ab means father. So Moab simply means, who's my father? This is an appropriate name for Moab. Why? Because if you study it, Moab was was born out of an incestuous encounter between Lot and his daughter. And that child's name was Moab. The Israelites looked down on the Moabites like Bay Area people look down on Fresno. Now, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. Fresno. Look, if you're from Fresno, email me at pastorgary at alcf.net. 
they, they, they looked at them as, as being from the country. They, 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 they looked at them as, as kind of being second class. And over and over and over, watch the juxtaposition. The narrator intentionally, he doesn't just call her Ruth over and over and over and over again. He calls her Ruth the Moabite. Watch it. So that Ruth the Moabite, she meets Boaz and Boaz blesses her. The text says he actually gave her an ephah of, 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 of barley. The idea of ephah, it's 29 pounds. Could last for a month. She comes home with a month's worth of food on her first day on the job. And Boaz gives her permission, yes, you can glean among the sheaves. And what does she do? She falls down, verse 10, and she says, what have I done to find such favor? The, the word favor, I love it. The, the, the Hebrew word for favor, it literally means, watch it now, to turn the face towards. It's, it's that word that was used in Numbers chapter 6 when, when, when the writer Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. So that the idea of favor, which means to turn the face towards, watch it now, it is an idea. It is a picture of grace. Get the juxtaposition. A Moabite from the wrong side of the tracks representing a marginalized, backwoods, country people who gets an ephah of flour and is allowed to, to, to gather among the sheaves. What's the picture here? The picture is she ain't done nothing to deserve this. That everything she has is because of the favor of God. Now I'm thinking of Luke chapter 1 verse 28 when the angel Gabriel shows up in a little town called Nazareth to a little woman from this podunk village of Nazareth named Mary to announce to her that God has sovereignly picked her to be the one who would birth the Messiah. The first words out of his mouth is, blessed are you, O highly favored one. It is as if Gabriel is saying, hey Mary, let's not get it twisted. You weren't chosen because of your looks. You weren't chosen because of your pedigree. You weren't chosen because of what side of the tracks you grew up on. You were chosen for this divine assignment for one reason and one reason only, the favor of God. The grace of God. Friends, when God moves in your life, and this is a message we need to hear in the Bay Area, I know you are very accomplished people who have gotten high-profile jobs. You are working the dream job. Some of you are. But I want you to understand at the end of the day something very counterintuitively. You might have been valedictorian or salutatorian. You might have graduated summa cum laude, magna cum laude, or like me. Thank you, Laudy. I want you to understand. Don't you think for a minute that you have what you have because you earned it. But for the grace of God, you could have been born in Soweto, South Africa during the 70s and the 80s during the height of apartheid. But for the grace of God, you could have been born one of these uh, forsaken immigrant children. But for the grace of God, you could have been left in one of these cages or decimated in one of these hurricanes in Puerto Rico or Katrina. But God, by his favor, for reasons known only to him, You are breathing by his favor. You are working by his favor. You are here by his favor. You are in that job by his favor. Favor, favor, favor from the Ruta to the Tuta. All that we have is the favor of God. Sin happens when we get beside ourselves in arrogance and pride. And like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, we look out and we say, look at what I have accomplished. Whenever I'm in Atlanta and I got to fly out of econ course, I go up those escalators, I can see it now. I always stop to look at a suit in a glass case. I always stop to look at a suit in a glass case. Some of y'all might be thinking, why in the world are you stopping to look at a suit in a glass case? 
Well, you're smart enough to realize that this just ain't any old suit that is put on a display in a glass case. This is a special suit, a suit that was worn by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. The, way, the reason why that suit is on display, it's not because of the way it looks. It's not because of the way it's tailored. It is saved and on display because of who wore it. The Bible says this, for those of us who are in Christ, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? In other words, right now, God is inside of you, which means we are wearing God. We are God's suit. And what makes us special ain't us. It's who wears us. It is God's. We are here by the favor of God. I'm out of time. Cormac and the team, I want you to come. All that we have is the providence of God. All that we have is the providence of God. Your ability to think came from God. Your ability to make money came from God. Your ability with math came from God. All that we have, all that we have. And at any given time, God can touch your mind and all of a sudden, you can't even do simple math. At any given time, God can touch and take away your ability to make money. And just like that, we're privileged. We're blessed. We're highly favored. We're here by the providence of God. You didn't just so happen here. My wife, she grew up in a broken home, and when she graduated from college there in Chicago, she, she got her dream job. ABC News hired her in New York City. Dream job. Here she is. She moves to New York City. Dream job. Yet she would describe those five, six months there in New York City as the loneliest time in her life. And all of a sudden, she made a decision that that those in her inner circle didn't like. She decided to quit her dream job less than six months in. She decided that she was going to move out to L.A. to get into entertainment news. Many people question that decision. You're, you're making the wrong decision. You're committing career suicide. But she moves out to L.A. and one of her first nights here, in L.A., she, she just so happens to meet an old friend who just so happens to invite her to a party. And she just so happens to go to that party. And at that party, she just so happens to run into another friend. And that other friend just so happens to invite her to church. And my wife just so happens to agree. And they just so happened to come to church. My wife's first time at that church in Inglewood, California. And the preacher preaches and gives the altar call. And my wife, with tears streaming down her face, says to her friend, I know you have to go. But the preacher, after the altar call, had said, I feel like I need to extend this, that there's one more person who needs to come. And my wife said, that's me. And she walked the aisles that day. And she gave her life to Christ. Was leaving ABC News a bad decision? It was the providence of God. Did she just so happen to run into that friend who just so happened to invite her to church? No. It was the providence of God. And did that pastor just so happen to extend that altar call? No. It was the providence of God. Let me give you just one more just so happens. And that just so happened to be the church I worked at. She met her Boaz. The providence. The providence of God. Listen, I've got to go. But I want you to listen to me. You're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. 
I want you to listen to me. You are not here in church today hearing this word because you just so happen to want to come to church. You are not here by accident. You are not here by coincidence. I believe that when Adam and Eve were running around in the garden looking for a fig leaf to hide under, that God wrote you down in his divine iCal app and ordained for you to be here, to hear this word and to come to know Christ. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray and I want to plead with you. When you just look at the rearview mirror of your life, God has been orchestrating the events in your life that you would come to know him. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray and you're going to come. But secondly, I, I want to pray for someone's here today and you know Christ. But like Daniel, you feel frustrated. My life makes no sense, some of you are thinking. And I just need someone to pray with me because this word helps me. But my life makes no sense and I've been frustrated with God. It makes no sense. Things aren't working out. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray. And you're going to come. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are here today by your providence. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. All things, all things work together for good. The good days and the bad days. The sunshine and the rain. As that music group sang back in the day, joy and pain, you use all things to work it out in your lives. God, we rejoice. Now, Lord God, save someone's soul today. Now, Lord God, bring clarity to someone's frustrated season. May they know you have not given up on them, but you are working it out right now. In Jesus' name I pray.